Welcome to the Rehope Podcast. Before we dive into this week's message, we'd like to provide you with some helpful resources. If you'd like someone to pray for you, it would be our joy to connect with you. So please email us at prayer at rehope.co.uk. If you'd like to get connected with an online Bible read-through group from wherever you are in the world, you can email brt at rehope.co.uk and be a part of a small group of people reading through the Bible cover to cover each year. Finally, if you would like to support the work and ministry of Rehope financially, you can do so online at rehope.co.uk slash giving. We pray you find this message encouraging, enlightening, and helpful. Enjoy. Good morning, friends. Um, friends, we are in the final message today in our little summer mini-series called We've Got Time. And over the past few weeks, we have been tier-listing the judges mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, and we've been evaluating their characters and the events of their lives to see what we can learn. And we're kind of like trying to see what um, the writer of the Hebrews would have said about um, those dudes if they had the time since we've got time. And here is how things have gotten to like this point. Um, we started off with Gideon, we put him in the B tier, and we took a lesson of choosing faith over fear from his life and also remaining faithful to the end. And then we talked about Deborah, S tier, and Barak, A tier, and the importance of obedience and how accountability makes a big difference with that. And last week we talked about Jephthah. We also put him in the B tier, and we saw the importance of remembering the good that God has done for us and using it as a motivation to pursue doing what is right. And in our final message in this little series this week, we're going to talk about Samson. But before we get into that, let me bless you. I bless you in the name of Jesus to know Jesus even more wonderfully today. I bless you to receive healing in your body and in your mind and your emotion and in your spirits. I bless you to um, receive guidance and help from God so that you can flourish in whatever like season you find yourself in with its own unique challenges and circumstances so that you can prevail. And I bless you to experience the love, joy, hope, and peace of God today. May it be good times. So last week we saw a little deviation from the normal cycle that we find in the book of Judges, a cycle that normally goes like this. The people sin and then God lets the bad guys take over for a while and then the people cry out to God and God sends a judge to rescue them and then there is peace for a while during the lifetime of that judge. And the difference that we saw last week is that um, God left them to themselves this time. Um, so they raised up a judge for themselves, and that was Jephthah, and like mixed results there. And the cycle needed broken, but it looks like cutting humans a little bit more slack and hoping that they'll rise to the occasion and the responsibility um, was suboptimal, uh, to say the least. And in all of our stories and events that we've looked at so far, there's been a bit of urgency about finding a judge. Do you know, like Gideon didn't want to do it, but the oppression is already happening, so do it. And Barak didn't really want to do it, but Deborah's like, yo, God told you to do this, so can you just do this? And I'm sure the dudes from Gilead didn't really want Jephthah to do it, but like, who else? So like, do it. 
And in all the events so far, the bad guys have already taken over and it feels like we need someone to rescue us already. We need someone now. So even if those like about to be judges don't feel ready or even if they genuinely aren't ready, that's sad for them. It's go time. So go and do it. But okay, so what if though? Like what if there was someone who was ready to judge? And what if there was someone who was preparing to do this? And what if there was someone whose like very purpose it was to judge? Like what if Samson though? And our introduction to Samson comes in Judges 13, when God visits a lassie who is married to a dude called Manoah. And God promises to end the struggles with infertility that they have been experiencing in their marriage to this point. And the series of interactions is just so beautiful. And the thing that gets me about this is like Manoah and his wife's high faith, just so high faith. Like she gets a visit from someone that she identifies as a man of God and it's like almost identical to Gideon's experience. Like um, she doesn't realize that this visit is in fact God until he demonstrates so. And I'm sure she would take knowing that this is God visiting her more seriously than just like a man of God, but I'm not sure how because she takes this so Seriously, she does not snooze on this. She goes, she tells Manoah. And you know, sometimes we have like these things in life that are like really like big level, like high level life struggles and like inability to have kids is gonna fall into that category. And sometimes with those big things, even when it looks like there's going to be some breakthrough, um, it can seem a little bit too good to be true. So we play it cool, or maybe we play it a little bit coy, or maybe we just like give ourselves a little bit of like emotional protection, um, and we're like, let me just see how this thing plays out before I get my hopes up, because if I get my hopes up, I might end up getting hurt. And that would be understandable for Manoah and his wife, but there's none of that with her. Like just high faith. And she does this twice. Takes a dude, takes a dude, God. She takes God at his word and goes straight away um, to tell Manoah, like she seems like an S-tier type lady. Um, Manoah meets her in that for sure. He speaks so practically and matter-of-factly with God and I just adore that. He talks like, what should we do for the boy who will be born. He says when, he says when, no ifs, high faith, so beautiful. They're taking it seriously. What do we need to do? What does the boy need to do? How can we honor you when your words come through? Love that. Well, actually there are things that you need to do and that's gonna come with some lifestyle changes, especially for, um, especially for his wife. So no drinking when pregnant, like probably a good idea. Um, not eating anything unclean. Again, should probably go without saying for God's people, but faithfulness during the time of the judges is not something that we could take for granted. But also she isn't to eat anything, like no grape adjacent products. Do you know, it's not just no wine, no grapes, no raisins, no vinegars made from wine uh, or grapes, anything like that. And like the dedication that this kid is going to have starts like at conception. Do you know, it's not that Samson was born to judge Israel. 
It comes from before that. Like Samson was conceived to judge Israel. This is his whole deal. He is conceived to start to get rid of the bad guys. That's his job. And how is he going to achieve that? He's going to, be, he's going to achieve that by being dedicated to the Lord since he is a Nazarite. And on the screen just now, you can see a number of requirements um, for a Nazarite when you're making that vow that can be found in Numbers chapter 6. A Nazarite vow is a special thing that people can do for a temporary season that's like a next level higher standard dedication to the Lord. And we often think about Samson with like the, the super strength and the no haircuts thing. And you can see there that no haircuts is a part of this, but it's not all of this. And it does seem to have a special um, like significance in it, but it's not the whole thing. We might think of Samson being like the super strong dude, and that's how he's going to do his job and his purpose. But we don't often think of Samson being super holy, do we? And this list on the screen should act as um, a support for Samson. Like here are the parameters and the things that you need to live by so that you can protect your dedication to the Lord. But um, kind of just in the end, ends up being a checklist of a lot of the things that he gets wrong. And maybe that's a little bit of foreshadowing to where the character study will go. But at this point, things are looking very very hopeful indeed. There is someone who is going to be raised up. They are going to grow up with a whole purpose from like being very young, from being conceived, this purpose. And it's going to be their whole deal. And they are going to faithfully, dedicatedly lead Israel back to God. That sound like Samson to you? That sounds like Samuel to me. It doesn't sound like Samson to me. Super strength, Samson. But there's no mention of super strength yet. This is all about holiness. And things when they're all about holiness is all about dedication. Holiness is dedication. And sometimes you'll hear holiness defined as like set apart. If you've heard that before, like people kind of took that from like, you know, things like the items in the tabernacle and the temple. And you see that they are holy because they are set apart from other similar items. Like they only did that one job. For example, like this holy ash shovel is only to be used on the ash from the sacrifices on the altar, on no other fires, and no other ash shovel is to be used on these fires. The holy one is set apart for that. Like they're kept in a separate place, they're treated differently, all the deal. And there is an element of set apart in holiness, but I think that definition overemphasizes the like separation factor because then if we follow that biblical metaphor through to its own conclusion that we are a holy people it makes us sound like we have to be separated from the common gross people and then being like a little bit snarky just to make a point um, but I mean I guess there are things that we do want to be separated from and not partner with but I think we've probably all seen how like the being separated completely from like Christian subculture the way that that works out and how ineffective it is for spreading holiness and beside that's definitely just not how Jesus did holiness instead I like to use the definition um, of holiness rather than being set apart as like being 
dedicated to. And the items in the temple were dedicated to their purpose. It was the only thing that they were used for. And yes, they were protected. And yes, they were not taken out of the temple. And yes, they weren't used for anything else. So yes, set apart. But that's just one bit of their dedication. Like the dedication is the big thing. And Samson is going to be holy because he is dedicated. And for him, that's going to look like doing like the God things within the context that he finds himself like living in um, territory that's um, occupied by the bad guys. And for us, that means like doing God things in the context that we find ourselves in and making sure that we are dedicated and we don't give up on doing that. Cool. So God is like, right, we have done the reactive, like, oh no, the bad guys are here thing. I better raise up a judge real quick. But what if I took a minute to raise up a judge? And what if the bad guys were around just a little bit longer so that I can raise up someone who is prepared? What if I have someone who is holy and dedicated to doing the God things? That will fix the problem. Because the problem, remember, is not that there are bad guys. If that was the problem, then the solution would be a military solution, get rid of the bad guys, in which case it would result in the people being like, yay, the bad guys are gone. Um, What were we doing before the bad guys showed up? Oh, yes, whatever we wanted with no moral filter. Yay, love that. Instead, the problem is they keep abandoning God, and that's not going to be fixed with brute strength. It's going to be fixed with a return to faithfulness through holiness. Ergo, you need a dedicated holy judge, Samson. That doesn't sound like Samson, does it? That kind of sounds like Samuel. At least we're getting close, but it doesn't sound like Samson. We think super strong guy, but we only know at this point about the super strong guy because maybe we know the story of Samson already and then we're reading it back into Judges 13. So far, there has been no mention of super strong. If we look at the text in Judges 13, we will draw the conclusion that Samson's defining characteristic, once he is born, and the thing that he will be remembered for throughout the ages, is his unwavering holiness. Yo, I cannot wait to read all these great stories of Samson and his unwavering holiness. He is gonna be so great. I love this. It's gonna be so exciting. He's gonna stand up and always do what is right in the face of adversity. Samson is gonna be so great. Let's read one of those great stories of Samson always doing what is right. So Judges 14 says, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young, oh, Philistine woman. He went back and told his father and mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife? What? No, no, not one of them. Like, don't do that, dude. No, not a Philistine. Oh, yes, those Philistines, the archetypal Old Testament bad guys, and also Samson's neighbors. Samson is from the tribe of Dan, and because of their proximity to Philistia, they're going to be feeling the effects of the Philistines. That's a lot of um, in there. Um, They're going to be feeling that the most... And naturally, then Samson's mom and dad are like, no, no, not, no, not her. No, no, no. Marry someone from here. 
And you think that God would agree with them because like God is like very not up for like marrying people from other places where they worship other gods because that cycle in the judges of abandoning God started and has its foundations like way back in the book of Numbers when the king of Moab uh, weaponized his female population sexuality against Israel and it worked. The men of Israel slept with them and married them and adopted their gods as their own and we find ourselves all in in this mess. So God is obviously not going to want Samuel, or Samuel, Samson, to marry this Philistine woman. But then we get to verse four in that chapter and things get complicated, doesn't it? Hmm, it was from the Lord? Okay, um, God wants the Philistines to stir up some beef and here's an opportunity of something that might provoke them. Right, this is getting a little bit more complicated than like Samson should be good, Philistines should be bad. And um, I'm not going to talk about this, but I only mention it as a little reminder when we're reading the Bible that we're not to treat the people whose lives are recorded here as two-dimensional characters. They have lives and factors causing them to act one way and another way in one scenario or another, and some of those factors are internal and some are external. And we just want to make sure that we don't treat Samson like everyone around him was great, but he decided to go off the rails. For sure, he had positive role models in his parents, but there are other factors at play, and that's complex. So let's simplify. Samson has got a problem with women, and every story centers around a woman and the drama that follows, and we're not going to get into anywhere near like that sexist attitude that the women brings the drama. It's definitely Samson that brings the drama. And a lot of these women just get like caught up in, um, in the crossfire between him and the Philistines. You know, every story revolves around a woman and he's supposed to be this faithful, dedicated to the Lord leader, but instead his cycle is girls, drama, revenge, repeat. And that's the way it goes. And dude is going to marry this girl from Timna, and then he's a bit of a jerk at the wedding, and he winds up killing a bunch of dudes, and then leaves in a huff. And when he goes back to be reunited with the woman that he thinks is his wife, then he gets mad, because it turns out she has married someone else, and I suppose that would be upsetting. Um, so a nice measured response from Samson, he burns all their food. Cool. So that provokes a nice measured response from the Philistines. They burn the woman that he loves and all her family. <laughs> we love this, right? Ah, okay, cool. So Samson swears revenge. And when the Philistines come to get him, well, actually, when Samson is being such a liability that the Israelites try to hand their rescuer over to the bad guys to kill him, that's how crazy he is. Um, you know, when the Philistines come to get him, he uh, extracts his revenge by killing a whole bunch of dudes. Whew. Going great so far. Lots of murder. Um, okay, great. Um, what could come next? It can't get any worse, right? So then dude is sleeping with a prostitute in Gaza because, you know, holiness, right? Right. And while he's sleeping with her, the Philistines find out about it. So they come to murder him, but he sneaks out and rips their city gates off their hinges and carries them back to Hebron. And that's roughly about 35 uh, to 40 miles 
uphill, roughly. Um, Google Maps, unsurprisingly, was unable to give me accurate walking descriptions across the Palestinian-Israeli border. Um, I'm not sure about that one, but like, think, think carrying these giant city gates uphill and setting them on Arthur's seat. We're talking about carrying these to Edinburgh. Like, dude isn't just like that. I'll show them, lol. They'll wake up in the morning and see them. Yo, psh, all right, fair play. Um, things can't get any worse, can it? Um, dude is in love with this lassie, right? And uh, she sells him out for cash and agrees to emotionally manipulate him into giving away the secret of his strength so that the Philistines can capture and murder her partner. That's normal, right? That's normal relationship stuff, isn't it? Like, you know, just like normal part of a relationship. Manipulation, blood, money, murder, betrayal, all just a Wednesday. I don't know, these stories are nuts. And these are stories that we tell to children. I mean, I, I've, I personally have told these stories to children, and I knew these stories when I was a kid, and I was a little church kid growing up in Northern Ireland, and something that I never quite understood when I was a little church kid growing up in Northern Ireland was this. How come these cranes at the world-famous Harland and Wolf shipyard in Belfast, the most iconic pieces in the Belfast skyline, how come they are nicknamed Samson and Goliath? It's David and Goliath for a start. Samson and Goliath seems weird to me. And I get that they're named after like two of the big Bible dudes who are like big, burly, super strong dudes. Like I get that. But why would you name one after a good guy? And why would you name one after a bad guy? That just doesn't make sense. Maybe one crane is gonna make good guy ships and the other crane is gonna make bad guy ships. I don't know, I genuinely could not wrap my little head around that when I was a kid growing up in Northern Ireland. And look, it was maybe like I didn't want Goliath to tarnish Samson's good name. But listen, the Goliath-Samson comparison doesn't go well for Samson. And it's not just because of some bad brand association. Look, Goliath came out with an army. And he immobilized king and army with fear and terror. He worked on a national level and his reputation alone was enough to immobilize a whole nation. Samson is picking these like little, like revenge-driven squabbles, like he's personal level squabble things. And like the collateral damage. Dude can take out a thousand soldiers in one go with a donkey's mandible. Could you imagine what he could have done with an army and with a sword. And if he had taken himself as seriously as Goliath took himself, it seems like everything is just like a laugh for Samson. I mean, forget Goliath. Like he doesn't come until way later in the story. But like contrast how seriously Samson's parents took their part in this with how flippant Samson is being with all this. He's playing these like little tricks on Philistine so he can kill a few dudes and then again and then again. He'd rather be chasing girls than being dedicated to God's work. He'd rather extract personal revenge than bring freedom to his people. He'd rather have a laugh with Philistines than do any actual battling with Philistines. He is so out of touch with his purpose, the thing that he was conceived for, that when he gives the game away to Delilah, he expects just to do the same as he always did 
and like bust out and like kill a bunch of dudes and like have a laugh. But because his hair was cut, his strength was gone and he was helpless, helpless and oblivious. And the Bible tells us that he did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't even know. So out of touch. And they captured him and they gouged his eyes out and they enslaved him. And after a while, they had a big party to celebrate the victory that their God, Dagon, had won over Yahweh, the God of the Bible. So they bring Samson out so they can have a good old laugh at him. And here's how that goes. Samson said to the young man who was leading him by the hand, lead me where I can feel the pillars supporting the temple so that I can lean against them. The temple was full of men and women. All the leaders of the Philistines were there and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof watching Samson entertain them. Now I'm sure that seemed like a good idea to that young man who was leading him by the hand, like get him right in the middle of that temple where everyone can see him so we can all have a good old laugh at him. Gosh, he made our lives miserable. I could do with it. I don't know, I could just do with a good laugh. I could. But then Samson called out to the Lord, Lord, please remember me, strengthen me. God, just once more. With one act of vengeance, let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple and leaned against them, one on his right hand, the other on his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might. The temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. And those he killed at his death were more than those he had killed in his life. That's the most damning sentence in, in the Samson story right there at the end. He did more with his death than he did with the whole of the rest of his life. He's supposed to have been dedicated. And what's his life work? He couldn't have been further from dedicated. And what you're imagining, I mean, I know the Sunday school stories where like um, this party has been uh, like so long after Samson's capture and haircut that he's grown all his hair back so now he can push the pillars. Um, I don't know if you've ever like grown your hair out long. It takes like a significant amount of time. Um, I don't think that's the way it was. I think that God strengthened him and gave him that even though he should have been completely, completely weak, God answered his prayer. And I can see why God would answer that prayer. Like God is not here to be laughed at. And he could, like Dagon could never step to God, never. So I could see why God would answer that prayer. I would imagine that Samson might pray something like, God, um, for your honor, like similar things to what Moses prays, for your honor and for your glory, like hear my prayer now. That's not Samson's motivation. With one act of vengeance, let me pay back these Philistines from my eyes. Samson is still motivated by revenge. But this time I don't want to be too critical for him because like what the, what the Philistines did to him was not okay. Like blinding someone, like not okay. Enslaving someone, like never okay. So I could see why Samson would want to call on God to bring some justice into that moment to like put some of that evil right It's just kind of at this point in the story that we're thinking, why did he take so long to call on God 
in earnest. Like, why not this instead? Like, why not go to God first? Like, why not go to God first? I mean, psh, I learned, I'm too critical on Samson. I learned this the hard way myself recently. So, friends, my left ear has been ringing since the middle of May. Um, that's quite a long time. And um, it happens to me from time to time, and it's a stress thing, and I clench my jaw when I'm sleeping, and because your like, mandible is right up in there, um, my ear rings, and um, it happens, like, I think I clench my jaw all the time, but like, when I've got something hanging over me, it happens a lot. And every other time that this has happened to me, my ear would have rung for a few weeks, but it just kind of like, seems like it just so happened that um, I would have like, a little like, holiday lined up. And then I'd go on holiday and I'd unwind a bit and then the clenching of the jaw a little bit less so then the stress would go down and then the ear ringing would go down. Um, but this has been happening since the middle of May and at May's kingdom come, I was like, I need to get someone to pray for my ear, for healing for my ear and for no good reason, I didn't. I did at the Holy Spirit night at Pentecost, but like with no big change. But then Jimmy and I went on holiday for a week and I was thinking like, this is gonna be the thing that does it. But when we were away on holiday, it was worse, like at least as bad, if not worse than before. And it wasn't until I got home that I really started like praying about this properly. And when I prayed, like there was like almost instant relief. Like the next morning I got up, like when, the ringing is usually the worst. Like my left ear kind of feels like it's underwater in the mornings, it's weird. And the ringing was just like way less quiet. There was not, or no, way less loud. None of that pressure, I was like, great, this is great. And then I stopped praying about it. Like it wasn't gone away completely, but I was like, okay, great, relief, great, I love that. Then it got gradually worse until I was like, yo, come on. So I started praying about it again and like again, like pretty quick relief and it's still there my ear is still ringing it hasn't gone away completely but I have hope that God will finish doing what he's doing what took me so long to pray about that thing now look when we pray there are often like practical things that we can do in faith to partner with that prayer and those things are good and an example of that um, is that Alex um, Alex Thurlow um, messaged me one day to say that she'd been praying for me and praying about my ear and that God um, moved in her to just be like, I'm gonna see if I can get Crooksy in with my dentist because I have a good dentist. And she started phoning her dentist. I think she phoned a few times. Um, but then I phoned the dentist and they, they took me on as an NHS patient, which is amazing. Now I'm just waiting for my night guard to come back from the lab. There are practical things that we can do in faith to partner with the prayers that we pray that aren't like, God, I've prayed about this, but let me take this back from you. I'm gonna do the things. But that's different. What I was doing was, God, can you pause for a minute? Because I'm gonna go on holiday and that's gonna sort this out. And I was putting all of my hope and all of my faith in the holiday to be the solution of my problems and didn't go to God. So then by the time then it gets really bad and then you pray and then you, turns out he hears and answers prayers. Come on, Crooksy, who knew? And it's like, why did, I why did it take so long? Like, why did I wait until it was so bad before I started praying? And why did I look to a holiday instead of to a God of the universe? That doesn't make sense. 
maybe you've got something in your life that you can kind of relate to that. Like maybe you've got something, and although you're maybe not cutting God out of the equation completely, like maybe it's just like further down um, your list in the things that you go to um, for like breakthrough or support in that thing. Like maybe um, you're inclined to see how things play out um, before getting your hopes up or whatever it looks like. You know, maybe you can relate, but let's go to God first. God sees you. He loves you, he cares about you, and he is able to answer your prayers and bring goodness into your life, the goodness that you need to see. And also, when you're in that zone of like going to God first, like as a regular, you're gonna stay in that deep connection with God so that you're not gonna miss what he's doing and you're not gonna miss what like you need to partner with in, in faith and do next. So... That's Samson, the not-so-holy, not-so-dedicated leader of Israel. It wasn't great, was it? Um, and if we thought Jephthah was going to be a liability, Samson took that to the next level. And sometimes we tell the story of Samson like he is going to be some like Bible superhero, and maybe he is, but maybe in the same vein as like the Incredible Hulk, you know, like terrifyingly strong and totally out of control. And that's a very like very dangerous mix, see tier, see tier, terrifyingly strong, totally out of control, like does more damage than good and was supposed to be next level dedicated to him but wasn't in touch with God at all. And he makes the list. Like how though, how does this make the list? And maybe this is a very one-sided telling of the Samson story. Like we want to also include things like, dude gave his own life. That ain't nothing. That ain't nothing. Dude did come good in the end and he gave his own life. And credit where credit is due. But still feels like it's going to take a little bit more of a challenge uh, to get a like writer of the Hebrews style summary of Samson Maybe they'd say something like, by faith, Samson gave his own life um, to destroy the temple of the God of the Philistines. By faith, he looked to God for strength in his moment of weakness. <laughs> or something like that. This was a harder one, friends. And I gotta tell you, when I was thinking about this, I was like, you know, I'm really gonna have to spin something out this time. Kind of feels like I need to stretch something out to see how Samson could make it on the list. Like, oh, it's just like yeah, it's still like great to me. How does he fit on the list? And it's like, blah, 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 crooksy. Yeah, your sin doesn't define you. Your faith does. You said that before, mate. We get it, we get it. But it is starting to sound like a little bit of a cop-out answer. Fair enough. How can the writer of the Hebrews take such a positive view of these dudes? How can you ignore the really grim things that a bunch of them did? You can't just sanitize history like that. You can't just edit out the things that you don't want to think about like that. Feels like the writer of the Hebrews is doing a very selective edit of history up in here. And here lies the problem when we just look at stuff kind of in isolation and we don't like get to understand it within the proper ordered logical flow of the whole passage or the book or the Bible. And we've been talking about Hebrews 11 a lot and I started this series by reading like the whole list of these dudes, including the judges. And now that we've had a little look, um, we can see that some of these judges, you know, their character and their actions leave a lot to be desired, but yet they're held up as heroes. So what gives? 
We need to get our heads around this because if uh, our sins don't define us and our faith does, there are two conclusions that we can draw. Either nothing we do in this life matters or like hopefully something else, like hopefully it's something else. And the book of Hebrews is dense and it does take a fair few brain cells to get into. And it's really important in that book to follow the logical, natural thoughts and arguments of the writer of the book of Hebrews. Otherwise you can end up seeing some pretty crazy conclusions like nothing we do in this life matters. For me, the book of Hebrews is one of those like slow read books. I end up being like, wait, hang on, and then I go back to reread the last bit. For me, it feels like every time, like, do you know when you're reading, like, drops to, like, eye-scanning level and your brain isn't quite engaged? If that happens to me for, like, a second, I'm like, all oh, right, okay, fine. And then I have to go back and reread the whole thing again to make sure I'm following what the argument is. Because it, it is a, a hard book for us to access, sometimes written to a very specific set of people with a very specific cultural, historical background, like, the background needed um, to get all the juicy goodness out of the book of Hebrews and like I have a different historical cultural background um, to the one that the original audience of the book of Hebrews have. You will too. So it's tricky for us but I've got some good news for us friends. Um, our very own Fiona is running another taster session for Scotland Bible School, and she's going to be focusing on the book of Hebrews. Um, and it's going to coincide, yes, woo, and she's going to coincide that with um, the week that we're reading Hebrews for Bible read through. Um, and everyone will win. So good. And um, the last one she did was class. And I would really encourage you to do this. She's going to do the whole book of Hebrews. But for now, I'm just going to do like a little rewind for a few chapters to see how the thought progression that's got us to this point works out. And we'll see that Jesus is the best priest and he is a forever priest. And he's always, always, always interceding for us. And he is priest in establishing and maintaining a better covenant. It's also one that lasts forever. And it's not going to be like doing sacrifices again and again and again and again anymore. That's done since Jesus did the best and permanent once for all sacrifice when he died for us and rose again like by this will this is the will of God by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time which can never take away sins but this man after offering one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God and he's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified by his one offering of himself on the cross Jesus has perfected forever everyone who has faith in him including Gideon including Deborah including Barak including Jephthah including Samson including me including you, if you've given your life to Jesus. The faith in Jesus is the defining factor since by that all the sins are forgiven. So this is where the writer of the Hebrews has gone so far. So why would they then write about such a wonderful forgiveness reality and then in giving examples of dudes who have experienced that and by putting their faith in the coming Messiah, bring up all of this awful stuff, stuff that God has forgiven and dealt with already. Stuff that God has forgotten about already. It's like that stuff just doesn't exist. It's like it never existed. 
And for, the, for me, that makes this all make sense. It's not a selective re-edit of history. It's an accurate reflection of these dudes and their spiritual realities since their faith in Jesus defined them. And you know, they had mixed results in showing that for sure. But I can relate to that. And I bet you can too. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to be like, yo, look, here's some warnings. Do what is right. Don't do what is wrong. And then they go through the whole big list and they land with the conclusion that since all these dudes were up against it for real and since they could go and keep going in faith, we can too. We can keep doing what is right since how we express our faith in this life really does matter. What we do in life matters and we want to make sure that it is honoring and good to God as a dedicated, holy people because that matches our new, like in Jesus, spiritual identity and reality. That's the conclusion that we will draw. Friends, your sins don't define you. Your faith does. Since Jesus has dealt with all those sins and they're done, so walk with him in holiness be dedicated to him. I've got a little challenge for you today. Um, and that challenge is to attend the Scotland Bible School taster session on Hebrews. It's gonna be really tasty, right? So tasty. Happening on Tuesday, the 15th of August from seven until nine. It's at uh, Rehope's West End location. It's gonna be great. And um, I'm sure that Fiona would be loving to talk to you about Scotland Bible School in general, what that taster session might look like if you've any questions. Um, but I probably think that the best uh, way you're gonna learn about what Scotland Bible School is about and what the book of Hebrews is about is to just go to the thing, right? That's gonna be the way that it does. Um, thank you. Um, She's not here today, but thank you to Cassidy for doing the challenge last week to contribute a story to 40 Days of Answered Prayer. Um, I'm hoping that um, the rest of you can follow in Cassidy's wonderful example um, by contributing a story to 40 Days of Answered Prayer. You do have um, a little while yet. We are asking if maybe we could put like a little deadline of the start of August on that. That'd be helpful, but I'm not talking about last week's challenge. I was talking about this week's challenge and I am done. So I'm going to pray for us before we move into a time of reflection. God, we bless you and we love you and we say thank you for who you are, Jesus, for what you did for us, like the life-defining work that you did for us on the cross, something that lasts forever. We bless you and we honor you. You're incredible. Everything about you is good. And not everything about us is good. God, forgive us for our mistakes. Help us to walk in your ways. I dedicate myself and I dedicate the people of Rehope Church and we dedicate like our guests here today who, who love you to living a life that pleases you and honors you and that reflects our faith in you well because you completely, completely, completely deserve that. God, come and move in our hearts. Make us more like you. Raise our dedication up. We bless you.